0: okay welcome back to religion and pop culture uh here at web yeshiva uh this this topic is a very large one um, i have three or four subtopics uh within this uh unlike last week where we uh talked about uh, a few examples of, of god and popular culture and we we also looked at the Wikipedia article about issues in portraying God and popular culture. And we talked about the larger picture of, can you even do that? Not really, according to Jewish uh, sources here, the idea of, uh, the eight Sahara, the, uh, literally the evil inclination, um, that, that everybody has is something that, uh, whether people are interested in religion or not, they, they, they understand this, that everybody has a, a good side and a, and a bad side or different parts of themselves. So there's a huge amount of material, uh, on this, um, what I would like to uh to do in this session is to look at three or four uh, ideas regarding the eight Sahara that appear in pop culture in certain aspects of pop culture and then to show how Torah sources uh, fit with those uh, with those ideas so uh, uh before we look at the, uh, the sources when we uh show a few uh pictures uh of uh some things we're going to uh, to look at in the course of this uh, session uh you'll look at uh a little bit of uh star trek the uh the original series uh specifically uh the the enemy within the uh, the fifth episode from uh from star trek uh well assuming that we that we have time we'll uh look at a certain Analysis of that particular episode uh, in in the book, the, the Ethics of Star Trek. Then we'll talk a little bit about the Strange Case of well, this actually uh, the book this book cover actually puts in the word the uh, Robert Louis Stevenson just called it Strange Case of Dr Jekyll and and Mr Hyde. Uh, and I'm going to compare that with a particular scene from the Marvel movie Captain America: The First Avenger. That will be the second idea. The third idea will uh, relate to uh, Willy Wonka on the Chocolate Factory, specifically the 1971 film with um, with Gene Wilder. This is a uh, what's on the screen right now is a a, uh, a book written by the director of that movie, and we'll have a quote from uh, from that book. Uh, I just want to compare a few editions uh, cover, book covers from from this book, which is uh, whether you like it or not, it is a uh a classic by uh by any standard of children's literature um there uh the, the the first uh illustrator uh, joseph Shindelman, um already back in the in 1964 a few editions have have his his illustrations very uh this is this cover well, well the, uh i'm not so familiar with this particular cover but it's an interesting one also from the Shindelman uh uh illustrations uh faith jacques did Totally different kinds of illustrations, um, Michael Foreman uh, did very uh, weird set of illustrations. This is all for the same book uh, and there's a a newer edition uh, just a few years old with uh, where the schindleman edition uh, illustrations are on the inside, but the cover was done by Ivan Brunetti with totally different uh, uh, drawing style uh, the the artist who's most associated with Raw Dahl is, uh, Quentin Blake. And this is one of the editions uh, that that he did. And here's a more recent one you see on the bottom, right? It says 50 because this book was published in 1964. So just, uh, six years ago, they had the, um, the 50th edition, uh, no, six years ago, 64, yeah, um, uh, fiftieth edition of, uh, of this book. And we will uh, address, we'll show a clip or two from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Uh, and I, I'm going to briefly talk about uh, the other versions of productions of the Chocolate Factory, weird one uh, from Tom and Jerry, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Uh, and then there's the Johnny
1: Depp movie from 2005. Um, the uh,
0: 2004 musical. If you haven't heard of it, that's because it's not a musical that was on Broadway. It's a musical that was designed for amateur theater groups. So there's the there are three versions of it, all done by the same people. There's Roald Dahl's Willy Wonka, uh, which is the uh, the main play that has two acts, and then Willy Wonka Jr., which you could have for I guess uh, 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 junior high, and then there's Willy Wonka Kids, which you could have. Uh, elementary school kids acting. It's all variations of the, uh, of the, same, uh, the same play. Uh, it did make it to, uh, to Broadway uh, in 2013, it was made into uh, all new uh, musical in uh, London's West End. And then a few years after that, it went to Broadway in New York for, uh, um, for a couple of years. Uh, and then if we have time, which I'm not sure we will, but I'd like to end by talking a little about the screw Tape Letters by C.S. Lewis. Subtitle is Letters from a Senior to a Junior Devil. And there's a wide range of covers of this book. Let's briefly look at four. Here's the first one, not in chronological order. Second, third, that's the, uh, the one that I happen to uh, to own, and, uh, and fourth. Uh, anyway, uh let's go let's go back to uh uh to star trek the star trek the the uh the original series uh was on uh television from nineteen sixty six to uh to nineteen sixty nine uh only three seasons uh you know this is uh over fifty years ago uh you might have heard of it uh even though it hasn't been on officially uh uh for uh oh yeah the reason you've heard of it is because uh, it continued in reruns, uh, for long enough to become this huge phenomenon and, and all sorts of spinoffs, um, the, uh, but in some ways the Star Trek, the, uh, uh, the original series is, it doesn't hold up in terms of, um, the production in terms of the, uh, uh special effects, uh, whatever they had of special effects in the, uh, in the late 1960s, but the ideas uh, are certainly certainly still discussed, um, and there are a few different episodes of Star Trek that involve the uh, the good Kirk or the bad Kirk, the the uh, good Spock and the bad Spock, with all different scenarios um, to to come up with this. Uh, the, perhaps the most famous one is not the one we're going to look at, but in which uh, the uh, the crew of the Enterprise uh, run into their their counterparts from parallel universe and you could tell that the other spock is evil because he wears a goatee that's how you could tell instantly he's the uh, the evil one and this became a theme for the TV show uh, uh, community anyway uh we're going to look at uh the what the the episode the enemy within uh says about the uh the eight sahara uh an interesting uh theory you don't have to accept it but it's it's an interesting one so the summary of this episode or the the setup of this episode is here in source source number uh number one uh summarized in the ethics of, of star trek um, so there are some people on the on the planet so some uh members of the crew on the planet uh the transporter uh malfunctions kirk returns from the landing party and shaken the engineering team escorts him to his quarters, unaware that a second Kirk is about to materialize on the platform. The second Kirk looks exactly like the first one, except that he's more wild-eyed and sweaty. But uh, same face, same uh, same clothes. Uh, so Kirk's animalistic double runs amok, committing violent impulsive acts, uh, including sexually assaulting Yeoman Rand, uh, which causes all sorts of problems when... Uh, the good Kirk shows up. Though the manic Kirk is eventually held at bay, the rational Kirk finds himself, here's the part that's not so predictable, utterly incapable of making command decisions, so long as he remains separated from his emotional self. So, why does this matter? Because that crisis can have deadly ramifications for the crew members who are freezing to death on that planet. The captain needs to be able to decide what to do, but he can't make a decision. So, let's look at uh a part of this uh of this episode optimized for motion
1: and video you have a point spock here an unusual opportunity to appraise the human mind or to examine, in
2: Earth terms, the roles of good and evil in a man. His what which you call hostility, lust, violence. And his positive side, which Earth people express as compassion, love, tenderness. It's the captain's gut you're analyzing. Are you aware of that, spot? Yes. Yeah. And what is it that makes one man an exceptional leader? We see here indications that it is his negative side which makes him strong. Uh Aha! His evil side, if you will, properly controlled and disciplined, is vital to his strength. Your negative side, removed from you, the power of command begins to elude you. What is your point, Mr. Spock? If your power of command continues to weaken, you'll soon be unable to function as captain. You must be prepared for that. You have your intellect, Joe. You can fight with that.
0: Okay. Now we're going to move to a few minutes uh, ahead. Do one more scene from this from this episode uh where the the good Kirk or more like the the rational Kirk uh if you want to call him that uh is trying to help the animalistic or emotional one who's uh lying down and uh and seems to be, uh to be dying.
2: What well, happened? Apparently, the body functioning weakened during the duplication process. In fact, I failed to consider. He's not dying. Yes, he is. Help me. How can he die? How can I survive without him? I don't know, Jim. Don't be afraid.
0: Special effects paid by the same person oh, man.
2: Hold on You don't have to be afraid I won't let go Hold on You won't be afraid if you use your mind and think Think you can do it that's it Tell me he is back
0: both cases thinking helped for both Kirk, thinking helped Jim
2: you can use that brandy now in fact I'll join you I have to take him back inside myself I can't survive without him I don't want to take him back he's like an animal a thoughtless brutal animal and yeah, it's me me It's human. Human. Yes, human. A lot of what he is makes you the man you are. God forbid I should have to agree with Spot, but he was right. Uh-huh. Without the negative side, you wouldn't be the captain. You couldn't be, and you know it. Your strength of command lies mostly in him. What do I have? You have the goodness. Not enough. I have a ship to command intelligence the logic it appeared you have as most of that and perhaps that's where man's essential courage comes from oh were you seeing
0: he was afraid and you weren't aha Ooh, okay there's a bunch of uh of ideas here i see that some people were uh commenting in uh as we were watching it um See, Rebecca wrote, it's interesting that Dr. Barad refers to this as the emotional self. I would disagree that version of Kirk isn't emotional Kirk. He's egocentric and power-hungry Kirk. Yes, yeah, so that that actually um, brings out a point, which is, what What do we mean by Yetzirah Tov and hara? A lot of the time, there are shifting definitions. Sometimes we mean rational, emotional, and sometimes we mean the part of us that wants to do the good thing, part of us that wants to be, do the bad thing, and those are not exactly... The same uh, as each other. Um, so yes, to some extent, any discussion of the 8 Sahara uh, is going to uh, to run into that. But that's okay. It's flexible enough that we can we can have enough uh, enough insights to uh, uh, to cover ourselves. Um, right. Okay. I see Rebecca wrote quote unquote good Kirk simply lack, lacks drive, lacks desire. Um, and Mark wrote. That, that the other kirk is kirk's nefesh bahamit, the, the expression for our animalistic side, which is that, but animalistic it normally, I'm I'm agreeing, but animalistic normally has a negative connotation, as we're going to see shortly with Jekyll and Hyde. Oh, there's the good side and the bad side. Um, this is a more uh, sophisticated uh point, First of all, that the, Um, The Kirk, without his animalistic side, can't make any decisions. That's a problem. That's not the good side. Oh, if only we could get rid of the bad, then we'd be better. No, we would be uh, flawed. We would be missing something. And furthermore, uh, what's explicit uh, here uh, from McCoy at the end, perhaps uh, that's where man's essential courage comes from for the The irrational half what the animalistic half, was afraid, and you weren't why was, uh why is uh the whatever nicer kinder gentler kirk um why was he not afraid because of his intelligence so in in both in, and in through these these two quotes uh both the um both the I guess, uh, uh, nicer side and the animalistic side, they both are flawed to the extent that one can live without the other. It's only with the, uh, the intelligence. Uh, but really they both, they both need each other, which is what, what ends up happening. Spoiler alert, by the end of the episode, uh, they end up, uh, uh getting back together. Um, but, uh, I, I like the way that, uh, Dr., uh, Dr. Barad or Barrett, I'm not sure. Uh, uh, comments on this in uh, in that book that I mentioned before, the the ethics of uh, of Star Trek. Uh, it's a different cover from the one that I showed, but it's the same book. Um, as much as we need emotional energy in order to command, we must also harness that energy. So the the animistic side has that energy, but can't make decisions either. You need to be able to combine the different sides of yourself in order to to make make decisions. So our emotions enable us to perform actions more promptly and easily than rationality alone. And if controlled by reason, our emotions can actually intensify our, our moral life. I should add that I think uh, she points out, I know I've seen this a bunch of, of places, that uh, in some ways the, uh, the main three characters in Star Trek the original series represent this in the episodes in general, that Spock is obviously the logical side and McCoy is the emotional side. They're both good, but they're both one-sided. And you need the captain to be able to balance the two of them, to be able to 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 listen to both of them and then then make the decision. So, um, so that theme ends up being played out in uh, in Star Trek in general. But in this particular episode, I just thought it was interesting that, as formulated here uh, near the end of Source Number uh, Number Three. Um, Courage and fear may seem to be mutually exclusive, but they 're actually compatible. The truly brave person not only fears uh, what uh, what they should when there 's a reasonable basis for the fear, but they can also stand up to this fear and uh, and confront danger so that it 's an interesting perspective which we don 't usually associate with quote unquote, the eight sahara that maybe the eight Sahara has uh, aside from getting us to do bad things the eight Sahara also gets us to do a lot of good things and uh, you've probably seen one or both of the following two sources from Chazal, but these two sources, um, between the two of them, make it pretty clear that the A is necessary for individuals and for the world. Look at source n- number number four, Gemara in, uh, sorry, uh, Midrash and Brachit Rabba on the words, and God looked at everything that He created, v'hinei v- v- tov maod, and it was very good. So the Midrash says, I understand, v'hinei tov maod. Oh. That's the Yetzir Tov, that's our good side. But why does it say, tov mode"? Why does it add an extra Vav? That must be referring to the Yetzir And it was very good, that's the Yetzir And the Midrash asks, What? How can it be that the bad desire is very good? Not just good, but very good. And the Midrash answers, If not for the Yetzir nobody would build a house. Nobody would get married. Nobody would have children. Nobody would even do business. So what do we call that? That uh the part of us that gets us to, to do things, to accomplish. Guess what? That's the same Yetsahara that gets us to uh to uh to sin. We need that if we didn't have that, we wouldn't accomplish anything. All these good things, we need that that drive. It's not exactly the same thing as from uh the, the Star Trek episode. This is more formulated as I guess what uh what what Freud would call eros. Uh, which is the the power of sex, but it's also the power of doing things, the power of life, as opposed to Thanatos, the uh, the power of death. So that's that's the uh, the Midrash, and the, the Gemara, uh, which brings out the ne- necessity of the Eighth Sahara, is in source number five. It's a long Gemara. I'm just going to read uh, parts of it. It's also a very weird Gemara, um, and uh, a bunch of commentaries say it's not meant to be taken literally, but it tells a story about during the time of Tanakh, there was still in the around the the leaders decided that they had enough of the eight Sahara and they would ask god to um, to allow them to get rid of the eight Sahara. Uh, the only reason I'm just going to read parts of this in uh, source uh, source number five in the middle of the first paragraph cl- like this is the same thing the the Sahara is responsible for the destruction of the temple and, and uh our exile yahavi el agra but isn't the whole reason why we were given in the first place in order to get reward by by conquering the eight Sahara? Well you know what? We don't we'd rather not have the reward and just not have the eight Sahara at all. So um, so God does a, a miracle for them and God hands them the gives over into their power the Eighth Sahara of Avodazara. Yitzhara, the Yetzirah, the, uh, uh, the drive to worship idols or to worship uh, multiple gods. And very weird formulation here. The Yetzirah appears to them as a lion, Kiguria Denura, a lion made of fire. And where did it come from? Not just the Beit HaMikdash, it came from the Kodesh HaKadoshim, the Holy of Holies. The place where nobody's allowed to go, even the Kohen Gadol, except at the holiest moment of the year that's where that's where that came from that's really weird and all the commentaries have to figure out what, what this is referring to um they end up um they end up uh imprisoning this uh uh this yes of avodah zara and the Gemara doesn't spell out what the implications are if we ha- really I, i've taught like all more or less all here, just on this i'll just mention briefly just to make some sense out of this, Rev. Cook has a fascinating interpretation of this, and just like a couple of lines, I think it's in Orot, where he says uh, the desire to uh, serve idols, which we don't have anymore, right? Like it sounds like from Tanakh uh, that it was this huge deal and it undermined everything and it uh, it caused the Jews to be punished over and over again. It just like really, we don't really have that anymore. So. Uh, it's because of this Gemara. They got rid of the Yitzhahara for Avodah But Rav Kook says, the Yitzhara, uh the strong desire to serve idols, was the same desire as the strong desire to serve God. We don't have that anymore because they got rid of it. And that's why, when we read in Sefer Vikra about all the karbonot and all the animal sacrifices, we're like, really? Like, ew, you know, blood, guts, whatever... Uh, even if you're not a vegetarian. Uh, so, Rav Cook uses this Gemara to explain why A, there doesn't seem to be much of a desire for a Zara in most people today, and B, there isn't much of a desire for the Beit Mikdash and Karbanot anymore. But Rav Cook goes on to say, in Messianic times, or whatever, at some point in the future, God will give us back that desire. Meaning, don't worry, when, when Mashiach builds the Beit Mikdash, or Moshiach uh, comes and Hashem sends down Benamikdash from heaven, that's Ram Bam, and Ashi, accordingly. We won't have Benamikdash without the desire to serve God with doing something physical. We will get desire back. But at the same time, we will also have the desire to serve idols. And all of the good and all of the bad will come together because you can't separate them. So according to Cook, the that point from... Rav Cook is not quoting uh, uh, Star Trek. Uh, Rav Cook died in 1935. This episode was from 1966. Um, but it's similar idea. You can't have, you can't have the, uh, you can't command, just like you can't command without your animalistic side. You can't desire to really serve God unless you have the same uh, desire to serve idols. Anyway, the, the, um, the Gemara goes on to say that the same leaders at that time said, hey, we're, we're on a roll now. Let's see if we can get rid of the Sahara for... Uh, the uh, the desire for uh, um, for sexual uh, offenses, for uh, all the all the violations of the Torah, adultery, uh, incest, etc. So um, God gave them that Yetsahara as well, and they said, "But wait a minute! But if we kill, if we get rid of this Yitzhara, the world will be destroyed." And Rashi explains, "There won't be any Purvu anymore." The same sex drive that leads to adultery is the same sex drive that leads to people getting married and having children. You can't separate them. So it says they didn't, they didn't know what to do. They waited three days while this, the sexual Yitzhakara was in captivity. And what happened? During that time, they looked for eggs. They looked for fresh eggs. And in all of the land of Israel, they could not find any fresh eggs. Meaning, not only the desire for illicit sex the same desire as for illicit sex but it's the same desire that causes life that causes chickens to lay eggs you can't have life without the desire for illicit sex so the compromise was they blinded this yesahara and let it go and as a result of blinding it that's why for the most part nobody is tempted by incest anymore apparently According to this Gemara, it used to be a big temptation, like there was a big temptation. Now, adultery is still a temptation, but not incest. It's a very clever Gemara. It ties all sorts of things together, and it fits, fits very well with, uh, with the idea that, that we were saying about, uh, uh, you, can't, about you, you can't be without your Yatara. It's part of life. It's part of what, what helps you to uh, to exist. Um, the, and I want to move on to a, a different, much less known idea uh, the idea, now granted this isn't fiction, but still, that the Eighth Sahara can be amplified by a special drug. And this idea appears in uh, the book that I mentioned before. I see, We're not going to have time to go through, compare all different versions, but um, the trope of split personalities goes back to this book from Robert Louis Stevenson from 1886. Uh, and it's been done in movies dozens of times, it's been done in all sorts of adaptations over and over again, all sorts of variations, but as pointed out, we're not going to get uh, get to go through it now, but as pointed out in source number six in the, the website TV tropes, it's the unbuilt version of the, of the trope in the sense that the standard version of the split personality story is presented differently in the original story. Um, I'll just, actually, let's just look at it briefly. This is top right of the page from TV Tropes. Instead of being, in the original book, instead of being a nice person who has his polar opposite manifest itself, Dr. Jekyll, in the book, is a secretly perverted man who takes a potion willingly as it will allow him to indulge his worst traits without ruining his reputation as an esteemed doctor. Um, and it's in that sense it's even more disturbing than all the variations in which uh, the uh, he splits into the nicer version and the the evil version. No, in the book he splits into who he was originally, the Doc Jekyll who is tempted by all sorts of things, not especially good, and his super evil side. Why am I telling you this? You know all this already. But I thought it was so interesting that in the the last part of the book. Um, well, remember, there's so much to say about this, but we're, I'm gonna gonna uh, skip through it. Dr. Jekyll, knowing that he's dying, writes up a confession of what 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 happened, and he says, "Had I approached my discovery in a more noble spirit, had I risked?" risked the experiment while under the empire of generous or pious aspirations all must have been otherwise All would have been otherwise and from these agonies of death and birth i had come forth meaning i would have come forth an angel instead of a fiend the drug had no discriminating action it was neither diabolical nor divine but it shook the doors of the prison house of my disposition and that which stood within ran forth at that time my virtue slumbered meaning i have not been a good person in general dr jekyll says so my evil was alert and swift to seize the occasion, the thing that was projected was Edward Hyde. In other words, unlike the more standard version, which is more or less what Star Trek did, the uh, what if you could split a personality into two, in the original book, Jekyll and Hyde are not two opposites. Jekyll is the problematic person from beginning to end, and Hyde is his evil side, but if only he had taken this potion with good intentions, what would have come out would have been his pure side, his angelic side, which does not actually exist in the story at all. And I thought this goes really well with the movie Captain America the First Avenger, in which before Steve Rogers is given the uh, uh, super soldier serum, which will turn him into uh, permanently into Captain America, he sits down and talks with the uh, Jewish uh, scientist uh, well, he, he's not called Jewish, but, you know, he talks Jewish, he escaped Hitler, etc., who explains about, about the serum, and he talks about the background, there was this guy, Johann Schmidt, uh, who was working for for Hitler, who had become convinced there was a great power waiting to be seized by a superior man, when he heard about my formula, he couldn't resist, Schmidt must become that superior man, you know, the Ubermensch in uh, Nazi terms. So Steve asks, did it make him stronger? And The doctor says, yeah, there were other effects, which we don't know yet at this part of the movie. We'll only discover near the end of the movie that it turns him into the red soul. Uh The serum was not ready, but more important, the serum amplifies everything that is inside. So good becomes great and bad becomes worse. And that's why you, uh, altruistic Steve Rogers, were chosen. Because a strong man has known power all his life, may lose respect for that power, but a weak man, and he's been very weak, uh, Steve, knows the value of strength and knows compassion. Just the, the premise, I know it's science fiction, but still, a fantasy, speculative fiction, but the premise that there's a serum, it's not exactly the same as from uh, Stevenson, a serum that amplifies everything that's inside. So good becomes great, bad becomes worse, Schmidt becomes an arch villain, and Steve Rogers becomes a superhero. And this reminds me of the following Gemara in source number nine. This is one of a bunch of Gemaras that address the issue of bad rabbis. How could it be that isn't the Torah supposed to make you, isn't learning Torah supposed to make you a better person? So how could it be that not just nowadays, but all the way back to the time of the Gemara, the Gemara in, in at least three or four places addresses the issue of people who know a lot of Torah and they're still bad people. Short answer is it doesn't say anywhere in our source that learning Torah can make you a better person. Can make you a better person. Look at the way it's formulated here. In the Gemara Oylaham, woe to ason Ahem the enemies of the rabbis, which is a euphemism for the rabbis. Woe to those rabbis. Shows the Shamayim who learn Torah but they don't fear God. Wow, woe to them. Like they have now become worse people skipping a little bit the gemara says and this fits with the famous posseck the one that we say when we uh lifted uh, the torah in shul <speaking> in <Hebrew> this is the torah that moshe placed psalm in front of the jews so the gemara makes a drush on the word psalm which is spelled with a sin and it means to place makes a uh homiletic reading of it as if it said psalm with a Samech. psalm with a Samach is a drug why is the torah compared to a drug because if the person has the merit has the zichut then the torah becomes a drug of life it gives him life and makes him a better person but if he does not have the merit in other words in the context of god he just learns Torah without the moral background. Then the Torah becomes a drug of death. Learning Torah makes him a worse person than he was before. So even though people like to say, "Oh, the Torah will make you a better person," no, the Torah, under certain conditions, will make you a better person. The Torah will bring out what you have already. Like that serum in the uh, in the movie. If you're good, it brings and makes you a better person. Good becomes great, and bad becomes worse. I just thought that was an interesting compare and contrast between the, uh, uh, among the three sources, uh, Stevenson, Steve Rogers, uh, and the Gemara in, uh, in Yuma. Now we're let's switch to, um, to Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. The, I wanna do two things i want to, all, uh, in a few minutes I want to talk about we we'll on the Zohar. that will be in, uh, in source number eleven. but I first want to talk about how the uh, what's generally considered to be the better uh movie of the different movie ad- or mu- movie and musical adaptations the uh the one with uh, with gene wilder from from seventy one what that changed from from Roald Dahl's book. so Mel Stewart, uh, the director
1: of uh, of the movie. Who, uh, decades later, came the shooting script for *Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory*? A number of major transformations,
0: and the most important alteration was to emphasize the moral fallibility that exists in all of us. Dun dun dun, also known as the Yetzihara. This was expressed in two plots, or two interlocking plots. The creation of the Everlasting Gobstopper test, which did not exist in the book, although the candy did. And Everlasting Gobstopper is one of the greatest candy inventions ever! Piece of candy, you can suck and suck, it never gets any smaller. When when Wonka gives each child a prized everlasting gobstopper in the 71 movie, he makes them promise that they'll never give it to anyone, setting up a moral dilemma for each of them. And you see Violet, one of the bad kids, you can see she crosses her fingers behind her back when she agrees, so obviously she's planning to betray him. So, Cobstopper becomes the ultimate test of their honesty and integrity, although only for Charlie does, does it uh, play out that way. That's one su- aspect that they threw in it is not in the book, and to tempt the kids into a moral behavior and to add a sense of menace to the film, but nowhere near as much menace as in the Johnny Depp film, we strengthen the part of Slugworth, who Mr. Wonka's candy-making competitor, whom Dahl only alludes to in the novel, he does not appear as a character except in passing in the original novel. Slugworth, in the movie, is a sinister-looking figure who confronts each finder of Wonka's golden tickets shortly after they're wrapped at Wonka bar, and he whispers something in each kid's ear. Oh, and he leans over their left shoulder, just like every time you ever see uh, uh, in a TV or movie where somebody has a, a dilemma, and you see on their shoulders appear the angel and the devil. The devil's always on their left shoulder. Okay, so that's, it's, A quick, iconic way of representing, even when you don't know who this guy is, you know he is bad. The audience doesn't know what Slugworth is saying until he confronts Charlie. And in the ensuing conversation, he promises to make Charlie incredibly rich if he will steal an everlasting gobstopper and bring it to Slugworth. And we then realize that all the children have received the same offer. Okay. So what happens what happens in the uh uh in movie? And since we're uh I don't want to spend too much time on this, but uh I'm going to uh, share the climactic scene near the end of the
1: movie. Uh just a minute. Here it is. I'll share. whoops, Just a second. Share that.
2: Okay.
0: A second. Just need to get to the right moment.
1: Um. One thirty-four. One thirty-four twenty-five. Right, so I skipped the part about
0: the fizzy lifting drinks, but for our purposes, just remember that uh, Willy Wonka, uh, actually, you know what, we'll just... Willy Wonka yells at them, when Charlie's the last one, he says, you, you, you ruined my fizzy drinks room, and you get nothing, good day, and... Uh, Grandpa Joe, who's been pretty nice until now, says to Charlie on their way out, I'll get even with him if it's the, if it's the last do thing I've ever said. Like
2: wants a he'll get one.
0: A Charlie stops. A lot is about to happen now.
2: Mr. Wonka?
0: He gives back. not going to betray him. So shines a good deed
2: in a weary world. Charlie. My
1: boy. You won! You did it! You did it! I knew you would. I just
3: knew you would. Oh, Charlie, forgive me for putting you through this. Please, forgive me. Come in, Mr. Wilkinson. Charlie, meet Mr. Wilkinson. Pleasure. Slugworth. No, no, that's not Slugworth. He works for me. For you?
2: I had to test you, Charlie, and you passed the test. You
3: won! What was? The jackpot, my dear sir, the grand and glorious jackpot. The chocolates? The chocolate, yes,
2: the chocolate, but that's just the beginning. We have to get on, we have to get on, we have so much time and so little to do. Strike
0: that, reverse it. This way, please. So, the person who, this is a real surprise. The person who appeared five times as the tempter, the one who's tempting the children to uh, um, uh, to give him a everlasting gobstopper. It turns out he wasn't really Slugworth. He was really Wilkinson who works for Willy Wonka. This was made up for the movie. It was not in the original book. And this brings me to, before we go back and talk about how this compares with the Zohar, I made this little chart after I looked at all the different versions uh, of the, uh, or at least researched the different versions of this. It turns out that... Even though, just answering the simple question, what does Charlie do to, to deserve winning the Chocolate Factory? There are five different answers to this question, each one given in a different version. In other words, even though in Dahl's original book, what does Charlie do? Nothing. He's the only one who's left after the other kids misbehave, or if you want to put it in Jewish terms, sur me He hasn't done anything right, but he hasn't done anything wrong, and that's good enough? He wins the chocolate factory just by not doing any, anything wrong? For Roald Dahl, that's the correct response, that's, the, that's what why he uh, uh, probably deserves it, and apparently, this is a little note from the uh, Wikipedia article on, on, the, on the Willy Wonka 71 movie, Dahl was infuriated by the deviations in the plot divided by the other up- Writer, including the whole slugworth thing, the whole pity lifting drinks, Why was he infuriated at it? Because it ruined his original point, which is, you don't have to be a good person; you have to not be a bad person. But not only did David Seltzer, who was the uh, the other writer for the movie, um, when Ronald Dahl did. did um, not only did he change that, but three other versions of this of the story all gave other endings, and they all rejected Dahl's original ending. In all of them, Charlie does something positive in order to deserve winning the factory. So what we just saw from the Gene Wilder film, and also the Tom Hanks remake. Which is a very weird, it's the same as the 1971 film, but without Gene Wilder, but it's, it follows it in a lot of ways. But it throws in Tom and Jerry, which is a weird mashup. Uh, anyway, it also uh, has a whole subplot about Slugworth chasing Tom and Jerry through the factory. If you like Tom and Jerry, I definitely recommend it. Um, it's, it's a little weird otherwise. But what does Charlie do? He deserves to win because. He re- returned the gobstopper instead of giving in the, in the temptation. It's not a temptation just to make money. His family is is very poor. It's understandable. And yet, Charlie overcomes the temptation. Put it in classic Jewish terms. He is kovashat yitzro. Remember back in the previous series, um, Best of Both Worlds, we compared Superman to a Hasid and Batman to a kovashat yitzro. Anyway, kovashat yitzro is, is a big deal. Overcoming your yitzrahara. That's wh- That's what we're talking about uh, in this session. Doll did not like that, but what I thought was interesting was in three other versions, they all they rejected the Slugworth plot and they wrote all different subplots in order to give a different answer to the question: Why does Charlie deserve winning the Chocolate Factory? So in the um, I'm going to skip the uh, 2004 musical because I want to come back to that, and the Johnny Depp film. At first, Charlie does nothing. He's the least rotten of the kids. But then Willy Wonka says to him, and this is only in the depth film, he says, you win the chocolate factory on condition that you move in with me in the chocolate factory and you abandon your family. Family is bad. So Charlie's like, no, I like my family. And he goes home. And at some point after that, he feels bad for Willy Wonka, so he comes back, and there's a whole subplot, which is only in this version, which Willy Wonka was an oppressed child, and his father was a dentist, who wouldn't let him eat candy at all, and he ended up running away from home, and and they've been estranged for years, and Charlie reconciles Willy Wonka with his father, who, when they end up finding him, it turns out the father has been collecting Newspaper clippings of Willie Monk all, all along. He really has been proud of him the whole time. Wow, you see, family is really important after all. And that's why Charlie deserves to get the factory. So it, that's a lot of extra plot in order to give a different answer to this question, but it's, a, it's yet another answer to this question. That's why Charlie deserves it. It's not enough that he, he just didn't do anything wrong. And the the musical, the London and Broadway musical, they had something that really in retrospect, again, not in retrospect, compared to the other ones doesn't seem that impressive, but it's that really uh, Charlie can't stop himself from coming up with candy ideas. And he adds ideas to the, to the notebook that Willy Wonka has, and Willy Wonka's like, oh, you deserve to be the next candy maker, which is understandable, but it's not really a moral issue. So let's forget about that. Let's go back to the third answer that I skipped before, the one that is called uh, uh where'd I put it? Uh page six. Sorry. Right. The one that is called Roald Dolls Willy Wonka, which you haven't seen unless you've seen it put on by a local production. They they licensed the uh the script for people to put on in their amateur groups and they have three different versions of it. In this version, they got rid of the slugworth plot, but they kept the fizzy lifting drink part. So skip here. Here, I copied down at the bottom here. I copied from the from the script. Willy Wonka says to them, I'm sure you could find your own way out. And Grandpa Joe says, why? What about a Charlie's Lifetime supply of chocolate? And Wonka says, oh, yeah, each of the children will receive their chocolate. Uh, P.S., I just want to interrupt this and say that in the London and Broadway musical, what Willy Wonka says at this point is, Lifetime supply of chocolate? I gave you an everlasting gobstopper. That's your, everla- that's your lifetime supply of candy. Goodbye. Which is really uh, sneaky. Anyway, so, uh, so Charlie says, says, goodbye, but then he hesitates, and then he says, just a moment, Mr. Wonka, I don't deserve a lifetime supply of chocolate. I tasted the fizzy lifting drink, and I broke the rules. Unlike in the, in the uh, 71 movie where Willy Wonka knows about it and kicks him out because of it. Here, Charlie confesses, I broke the rules, I'm very sorry, but thank you for a wonderful day and the most wonderful tour of your factory, etc., etc." And Wonka says, bless you, Charlie, you just did it. And, um, and Willy Wonka says, I created this entire competition with just one purpose in mind, to find the perfect person to make new candy dreams come true. That's the same in all the different versions. Says, this whole thing was a test of character, which is only in this musical and in the 71 film. The, the next sentence is only in this version. I carefully selected all the rooms that would tempt each of our golden ticket winners. Aha, very clever. The TV room for Mike TV and the, the room with the chocolate river, the, the room where everything's edible for the kid who eats everything. Aha, that's not in the other versions, but very clever. You, Charlie, did something quite remarkable. You gave in to temptation. You were smart enough not to get caught, and yet you admitted your guilt. So that combination, oh, it's not any one of the three. It's all three. He gave in to temptation, and he was good enough to not get caught, which is something. Like you need, that, I guess, to survive in business, I guess. And yet you admitted your guilt. Wow. So, he didn't have to. He wasn't caught, unlike in the 71 film. So, according to this version, what what makes Charlie deserve to win the factory is he did Tuva. He said vidui. Wow. That's an impressive version and I wish that this version were that this that this musical were uh, were better known. Anyway, let's get back to um, uh the the Zohar the Zohar appears here on source. I'm skipping the interpretation of it, and we'll, uh, if we have time, we'll, we'll go back to it. Just a second. Here it is. The Zohar on uh, in source number 12. The Zohar gives a radical interpretation of the Yitzhahara that's going to fit very well with the place of Slugworth in the 71 film. Okay, ready? Elvada Yitzhahara Yitzhahar de demare avid. Etara is doing the will of God. Mamaka, now we give a, a mashal, an allegory. There was a king, uh Bar Barykhiday, he had only one son. Thavarahim lay yat, and the king loved his son a lot. Upakita lay Barahimu, the will Garme. it tabisha. And and God and uh, God. The king in his in his uh in his love, he commanded uh Commanded his son not to go to a bad woman, a woman of of ill repute. Begin to laman di kariv legaba. Love kedai ihula Allah gav paltir and demalca because if you if you be the kind of of. Uh, of prince who frequents prostitutes, then he wouldn't be worthy uh, morally of becoming the uh, the, uh, the next next king. And the son pledged to to do what his father wanted, and he would not go to a prostitute. Now here's where it gets interesting. Malka bar outside of the palace zona. There was a prostitute, Ya'a, who was beautiful, a Ya'avachizu, beautiful in appearance, the Shapira, bebreva, gorgeous. One day, Amar Amar Malka, the king said, I want to, um, I want to show, I, I want to see if uh, if my son is is uh, is actually doing what I said." So he decided to tempt his son. He called, he called in the prostitute, and the king said to her, I want you to try to seduce my son. To see if he overcomes temptation and does what I ask. Hizona. so now the, 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 uh, the Zohar kind of uh, uh, pulls out. Of, from the story a little bit and asks that prostitute, Maya uh, Avdit, what does she, she do? Aslat, uh, Abatre, uh, de Bray, she, go, she goes after the, uh, the son, Bray Damalka, the prince. Uh, she starts hugging and kissing him, become a pituyan, and to try to seduce him. That's what the king asked for. If If the son, if the prince, does does the good, does the right thing, and he listens to the command of his father, what does he do? he yells at the prostitute, he doesn't listen to her, and he pushes her away, and the father sees what, what his son is doing, or finds out, Lagav Pargoda, he brings him into the palace, he gives the, the prince uh, gifts, Navaz Yakar Saga and gives him a lot of wealth. In other words, he appoints him his official successor. Uh, maybe there were other princes, and it, there was a question of choosing him or not. It's not clear. Here's where we get to the point. Man, Garim, Koha, Yakar, Lahai bara So who caused all that wealth to go to the prince? Avima, you should say, Hahi the um, the uh, the thanks go to that prostitute. That he's because if not for her, the prince would not have been able to show the king that he was uh, listening to him. But he's ona And as for that prostitute, it was shabcha bahai alo. Does she get praised or not? itwa mikol She should for sure. The prostitute should be praised. Chad. First of all, the She was only trying to seduce the, the prince because she was doing what the king wanted. and another uh, another reason is the garment She indirectly caused the prince to get all the uh, all the great wealth and honor. And get all the love of his, of his father. But alda regarding this Khativ, it says in Brahsheet, this should look familiar. We saw it. He made V'nei Tov az da ma'od da slightly different uh, uh, drasha but it ends up the same thing. V'nei Tov ma'od includes the angel of life and the angel of death also known as the good inclination the bad inclination Te'iluva vadai Tov ma'od the yetara is definitely very good leman da'aseh demare to someone who listens to the commands of our master God who made the Etzahara but gave us mitzvot and we should only get reward for listening to the mitzvot for following the mitzvot because we're tempted to do otherwise if not for the temptation we wouldn't deserve any reward The come and look if not for the heavenly accuser the Yitzhara, uh, the Satan, accuser in heaven, la yartun sadikaya Haneg gandaya All the righteous would not inherit, would not deserve to inherit all the, uh, the great uh, treasures in, um, in heaven or in the Garden of Eden. Dizminin liyarta Well, which, which they're going to inherit in the world to come. They, if, it doesn't matter that you are righteous in theory. To deserve reward, you need to be righteous in practice. And the only way that you're, you can be righteous in practice is if you're tempted, and you don't give in to temptation. So the one who pointed this out, the one who connected We Walk in the Chocolate Factory, 71 film, with the Zohar, is somebody named uh, Mordechai Hausman, who is a, uh, a chassid from an English-speaking background who's written a bunch of uh, essays in Machshava on, on his website being Jewish. And he tells the, the, the whole story, uh, basically summarizes the movie, assuming that you haven't seen it. I assume that we have seen it. Um and um uh, and he says Wilkinson Wilkinson is Slugworth. Ah Slugworth was sent out to each of the children to test them. Aha. So Christians take Slugworth at face value. Who is the devil? A reprehensible competitor. Stop at nothing to undo Wonka. That's how they view Satan. But Jews don't see it that way. Just as Slugworth is really Wilkinson doing what Wonka asked him to do, the Satan, the Yetzirah, is also not working for himself. Satan means he says it means hinderer. I would say it means the accuser in heaven. That God created the hinderer to give us work to do in this world. The Satan is here to make things difficult for us so that we can overcome our evil inclinations and pass the test. So that doesn't mean that that uh, David Seltzer, the, uh, the screenwriter for Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, was aware of the uh, of the Zohar, but he certainly seems to have hit on a uh, similar idea. I thought that was that was fascinating. Um, so in our remaining few uh, minutes, I want to uh, talk briefly about uh, the Screw Tape Letters, uh, which is a a book of the psychology of the Yates Sahara. It's sophisticated. enough. I would not recommend it for children and even adults. You have to keep switching in your mind because it's a senior Yates Sahara is writing a letter to a junior Yates Sahara how to tempt the person you've been assigned to. And it keeps referring to the enemy, capital E. And as you're reading it, you're like, oh yeah, the enemy is God. Because C.S. Lewis, who wrote this book, was a uh, a theologian so he 's starting from a Christian perspective, and that part you know the du- uh, duality that 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 Satan and the devil is the enemy of god okay that that we can 't get on board with, but once you get past that, the premise of how do you tempt somebody okay what would it, if you could imagine the eight Sahara giving lessons, what would they be so um, so Rav Arn Lichtenstein was uh Told his, told his students a bunch of times when he was asked to suggest a book of Musser, he would suggest the screw tape letters. And even though he didn't write this in print, it fits with Rav Arnuchman's famous essay on Torah Omada and what the value of literature is that he wrote in 1963, in which he says, general knowledge also helps us preserve our faith. Uh, that when he quotes the Mishnah Parkei Avot, Masha Tashiv you should know what to answer the heretic and Rav Wilkinson says, this, this Apichorus could be the Apichorus within, in ourselves. We must be ready to reply to his prefer of the bittersweet apple, but we must first read a treatise on serpent, serpentine psychology. Well, you know what? There's not a lot of books on the psychology of the Yed Sahara, And this, the screw tape letters, is, uh, is one of them. Uh, written by C.S. Lewis, who is better known these days for writing the Nar- Chronicles of Narnia, he wrote it in, uh, in 1942. Um, it's 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 subtle. It makes a lot of subtle points. Uh, a lot of these points don't exist any in any Muster safer, as far as I know. Um, and uh, it's worth reading. It's uh It's also worth. Um, well, it's it's worth listening to the audio version, which I'll just play. Um, uh briefly, just a second. It's not the entire th- oh wait, that's not what I meant to do. Just a minute. Uh share
1: content. Here it is. Uh yeah, here it is. Okay. It turns out the
0: audio version of the screw tape letters is read by John Cleese. Even if you're not a huge fan of Monty Python, okay, you can't you can't compare uh, you can't compare just reading a book with, with hearing John Cleese uh, be the Sahara and uh, I'll just play brief parts of
3: it now. The use of fashions in thought is to distract the attention of men from their real dangers. We direct the fashionable outcry of each generation against those vices to which it is least in danger and fix its approval on the virtue nearest to that vice which we are trying to make endemic. The game is to have them all running around with fire extinguishers whenever there's a flood and all crowding to that side of the boat which is already nearly gunnel under. Thus, well, well it is make fashionable to expose the dangers of enthusiasm at the very moment when they are all really becoming worldly and lukewarm. A century later, when we are really making them all byronic and drunk with emotion, the fashionable outcry is directed against the dangers of the mere understanding. Cruel ages are put on their guard against sentimentality, uh, feckless and idle ones against respectability, lecherous ones against puritanism and whenever all men are really hastening to be slaves or tyrants we make liberalism the prime bogey wow that's that
0: that's a lot that that's a lot in in just in just one paragraph the words are right here in source number 18 the words are those of c s lewis as presented by the sahara screw tape but i don't know for me it's just Listening to John please, uh read it is just a special uh, special experience anyway our our time is uh is up uh, i uh, I will end the recording and then uh, uh, for those who can stay i'll uh, go through the uh comments uh, in the chat and ask if anybody has anything else to say uh, but um, but i uh, our time is up and we only well, we covered most of it and uh I appreciate uh everybody for for being here and uh thanks for joining me and uh hope to see you next week